Our Old Testament reading this morning is Psalm 89, verses 1 through 37. We'll be reading in a few minutes about the Lord Jesus calming the storm on the Sea of Galilee. And here in Psalm 89, we read of the Lord himself as the one who stills the waves of the sea. Psalm 89, 1-37. This is God's holy, perfect word. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. Your faithfulness you shall establish in the very heavens. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David. Your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. And the heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the saints. For who in the heavens can be compared to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to the Lord? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You have broken Rahab in pieces as one who is slain. You have scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all its fullness. You have founded them. The north and the south. You have created them. Tabor and Hermon rejoice in your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. And high is your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. Blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. They walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. In your name they rejoice all day long. And in your righteousness they are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. And in your favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord and our King to the Holy One of Israel. Then you spoke in a vision to your Holy One and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found my servant David. With my holy oil I have anointed him, with whom my hand shall be established. Also my arm shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. I will beat down his foes before his face and plague those who hate him. But my mercy and my faithfulness shall be with him, and in my name his horn shall be exalted. Also, I will set his hand over the sea and his right hand over the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Also, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My mercy I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm with him. His seed also I will make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes, Nevertheless, 
My loving kindness I will not utterly take from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I have, sw- I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever in his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. And our sermon text, Matthew chapter 8, 23 through 27. Now, when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves. But he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? Let's pray. It is not in ourselves, O Lord, to make our hearts soft to your word or to work up faith and trust in you. It's only by your spirit. So we pray that by your spirit, you would indeed make your word to bring us life and bring us faith and bring us trust in our Lord Jesus Christ. Show us the glories of our Savior and make our hearts to love and trust Him. We pray this for His sake. Amen. At the end of the passage there that we just read in Matthew chapter 8, the disciples are there in the boat, the waves are over, the sea is calm, and they're staring at Jesus in terrified wonder. Who is this? Who is this guy? Who is this man? The winds and the sea obey him. He speaks, and just like that, it's all still. They're astounded. Wouldn't you be? Right? At that kind of authority? There's the sheer power of his word. He speaks and it's done. Their question that they ask, who is this? What sort of man is this? That's the question that's really, you know, that, that, that's driving the whole account here of, gospel, of the gospel of, of Matthew. This is his purpose. It's to ask and answer that question. Who is this? Who does these amazing things? Who does these gracious things? Who does these shocking things? And in particular, right, that answer, there, there are so many facets that answer that, that, that question, but in particular, Matthew is holding up for us in Matthew chapter 8 and in chapter 9 as well, one particular facet of, of Christ, of, of his identity, answering this question, who, who is Jesus in, in one particular way? And he's highlighting here for us Jesus' authority. Jesus' authority. This is the main theme of this this section of Matthew since the Sermon on the Mount concluded back in chapter 5. 
And, uh, and the people said, who is this who teaches with, with such authority? Since then, we've seen demonstration after demonstration after demonstration of that authority. We, had, we, we, we get six uh, healing miracles in chapter 8 and into chapter 9. Excuse me, not healing miracles. Six, six miracles. The first three are healing miracles. We saw these a couple weeks ago. Jesus touches the leper. He speaks to the centurion's servant who's miles away and heals him. Jesus touches Peter's mother-in-law who has a fever and she's immediately healed. He does three healing miracles there in the beginning of chapter 8. And then he goes on and then he, he does three more miracles showing his awesome authority. He calms the storm. Next time we're, we're, we're together, we'll see that he, uh, he, he, he casts out demons. And the next time we'll see that he forgives sins and heals the paralytic. Right? And all of it is showing us Jesus' authority. We come to the end of this section in Matthew 9, 8, and this is the, this is the summary. They marveled and glorified God who had given such authority to men. Jesus is authoritative. That's not often the picture of Jesus that is common in our culture, is it, right? We usually think of him, our culture, the world around us usually thinks of Jesus as a good moral example, perhaps, or a good moral teacher, uh, uh, but, but, but not the King of kings and the Lord of lords who has this kind of authority. Matthew is showing us that, that Jesus is God with us. He has the same authority God has. He is God. And He commands the whole world. Loved ones, that means, right, if He has that kind of authority, as, as Matthew is showing us that He has, it means that He demands our whole life. That, 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 that means, right, when He calls us to follow Him, and we get this call to discipleship we saw last week embedded in the middle of all this miracles of authority between those six healing miracles right square in the middle is a call to discipleship. Are you going to hear my authority? Are you going to follow? Right, so that, that, that call comes with that command and that authority, but what we see is, is that what does he do with this authority? He's so gracious, gentle. He's not using it to be domineering. He's using it to save. He touches the leper. He takes on our infirmities and our weaknesses and our sins. He's the suffering servant. He's come to take, right, to, to use this awesome, awesome authority that he has as the God-man, as the Messiah, to save sinners. And he does it. He does it for us, loved ones. He uses this authority for us so graciously so that we learn not to fear but to trust Him. This is, the, this is the focus of this particular miracle, the calming of the storm, that Jesus, yes, this awesome authority that He has, but that, what, what that means for us is, is that we should trust Him and that, and that we can be free from every other fear. We must, we must forsake all other fear and trust and fear and, and follow Him and Him alone. He's the Savior who tells us, don't let your hearts be troubled. Why are you so afraid? Trust, trust in me. So let's dive in. Let's unpack this together now. We pick up the story where we left off last time. Jesus, as I said, he's just issued this call to discipleship, a radical call in the previous 
section here in Matthew. He said, forsake everything and follow me. Put me first. Your father died. You want to go bury him? No. If you're really serious about following me, come follow me now. It's a radical call to discipleship. Then we jump into this this section here. And in verse 23, we see Jesus get into a boat. He's already asked his disciples to get this boat ready. Now he gets into it. It's interesting here in verse 23, Matthew is usually pretty concise when he's describing a narrative. Some of the other gospel writers would give you a little more of the detail, a little more of the color. But Matthew, he likes an economy of words when it comes to describing narrative. But in this section, he gives us a little bit extra. He says here, Jesus got into the boat and his disciples followed him. He could have just written, they got into the boat. But he doesn't. He says, Jesus got into the boat and his disciples followed him. What we're seeing then is that, that this story is, at least in some ways, a picture of this discipleship that he calls us to. He's just told the scribe, you know, if you follow me, there's going to be dangers and difficulties and, and, and storms, really. And that's what we're about to see in a very literal way, that this comes with discipleship. Matthew doesn't tell us which disciples follow him. It's probably the 12. We're going to get introduced to all 12 of them uh, uh, in, a, in a few chapters' time. And the maximum number that a common fishing boat in the Sea of Galilee could carry was about 12 or 13 people. So there's probably the 12 disciples and Jesus. They get in the boat, they follow him in, and they set out to cross the lake. And suddenly a huge storm comes, and the, the, the Sea of Galilee is, is known for having these big storms that, that come down on it. It's, it's far below sea level, and it, the, the, the geography of the, of the area makes it so that these storms come up, these violent storms. But this one, it seems to be bigger than anything the disciples have ever seen before. The, the, the boat is being swamped by the waves, covered by the waves. And what, what we see here, brothers and sisters, that we need to take notice of, is that Jesus has led his disciples straight into a life-threatening storm. He told them to get in the boat. He said, I'm getting in the boat. Follow me in the boat. And he's leading them right into a storm. They're there in the storm fighting for their lives because of him. Because they followed him. The scribe, assuming he didn't follow Jesus, is probably back at home in his comfortable house enjoying a nice dinner by the fire. But the disciples who chose to follow Jesus, he led them straight into a storm. There's a wonderful comfort there, though, for us. Sometimes people say, right, God doesn't, he's not sovereign over the heart. He doesn't cause the hardship and the difficulty and the suffering, right? He'll comfort and encourage you in it, but he doesn't cause it. But what we see here is that Jesus is the one who leads us straight into the storms. It's because we're following him that this storm is happening. It's, it's because we followed him, he's brought us straight into it. He's not, he's not tagging along behind or beside you. He's in front of you, leading you into it. Whatever you are in, right, whatever kind of difficulty or struggle or, or, or storm you're, you're facing, you're there. If you're following Christ, you're there because he's led you into it. But the disciples in the boat don't seem to be thinking along these lines. 
Uh, they, they are not filled with faith, right? They're not saying to each other, brothers, there's a storm, but we know Jesus is the one who led us into this. And we trust him. You know, this is going to be okay. They're not filled with faith. They're, they're filled with fear. They're filled with doubt. The storm isn't causing the doubt. It's exposing the doubt that was already there. The storm is taking their faith out of the lecture hall and into the, into the, 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 out into the lab, and it's testing it. And it's exposing how mixed with unbelief their faith still is. The disciples are doubting. Why are they doubting? First reason is because of what they are seeing when they look around them, right? What they're observing with their eyes around them. They see a storm. They're looking at this storm. The Greek here calls it a seismos megos. That sounds pretty, pretty fierce, doesn't it? Seismos means like an earthquake, a seismograph. We have those. They tell us what kind of earthquake we're having. Um, a seismos is, is like an earthquake kind of storm happening on the Sea of, of Galilee. Megos, um, mega, right? Big. This is a big storm that's thrashing this boat. Um, it's life-threatening. Some of these disciples are fishermen. They've probably spent their whole lives on a boat on this lake. But this is like a storm they've never seen, and they are terrified. And they're doubting. Why are they doubting? It's a big storm, and it's brought them to the end of, their cell, of themselves. Their skills aren't up to it. Right? Their competency ends when a storm gets this big. Their strength ends when the storm gets this big. They can't do it. So they're scared. They've been trusting in themselves, and now it's proving unable to help them, and they're terrified, and they're doubting. On one level, it's hard to blame them, isn't it, right? If you've ever been in a small boat in a big storm, I'm sure you know something of what this must have felt like. The storm just looks too big. So the disciples observe the storm. Big storm. They're scared. Then they also observe Jesus. If the storm looks too big, Jesus looks too small. He's asleep. He's tired out. He's exhausted. He's been working so hard giving himself to heal people and teach people, and now he's completely worn out. He's exhausted in the boat. He's asleep in the boat, and he just looks like he's not going to be much help right now. This is one of the clearest pictures, brothers and sisters, in the Gospel accounts of the humanity of Jesus, that he did get tired, just like we get tired, emotionally, physically exhausted, and even as these waves are crashing over the boat, you think he'd wake up, but he doesn't, right? Because he's just so tired out. He looks so weak. Isn't, isn't this, right, we're looking, we're diagnosing the disciples' doubt and fear. The storm looks too big. Jesus looks too small. Isn't, isn't that at the, the root of, of our fear and our doubt as well? We look at the situation, we look at the circumstances, and it looks too big. And we look at Jesus... And he looks too small. We forget him. We forget who he is. And we focus on the danger and the circumstances and the storm. And it drives out the thoughts of our Savior and, and who he is. To paraphrase an old Scottish minister, 
For every look at Christ, we take ten at our anxiety-inducing circumstances. The disciples are doubting. What are they doubting? They're doubting Jesus' identity, aren't they? They've forgotten who He is. They're they're, they're doubting that, that He is truly the Christ who has divine authority. They're doubting that, uh, that he has the ability to, to, to save them. He, they've just seen, they, they, should, they should trust him, right? They've just seen such a visible display of Christ's authority. He just spoke and a man miles away was made well. He just touched a leper and instantly they were healed. Or they should trust this man's authority, Jesus' authority. They've seen him cast out demons. They've seen him heal the sick. But they are still doubting him. They're still doubting what he can do. If they truly believed he was who he was saying he was and showing himself to be, right? God with us. God come in the flesh. They would have trusted him, wouldn't they? But they're doubting. They're doubting that he is God come in the flesh. They're doubting that he is the Messiah as well, the long-promised Messiah whom they knew when he came would, would, would be clothed with, with the Holy Spirit and filled with authority and filled with power. They're doubting these things about Jesus' identity. Brothers and sisters, we do the same thing, don't we? As we, as we, uh, uh, face, as we face difficulties and, and, and struggles and hardships, we doubt Jesus' identity. Uh, we, might not, we might still profess the truth that we know in our heads, that Jesus is God and Jesus is the Messiah, but practically, right, in our guts, we don't really believe that all the time. We don't always trust His authority, that He can do whatever He pleases. So the disciples, they doubt Jesus' identity as God and man. They also doubt His concern for them. Uh, they, They doubt His care for them. This doesn't come out explicitly in Matthew, but we do see this in the parallel account of this same situation over in Mark. In Mark 4.38, the disciples say to Jesus, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Or don't you care that we're suffering and struggling and that we're about to die, that the ship's going down? They thought he was oblivious. Didn't care. Napping in the boat while they fight with every last ounce of their strength to save their lives. They doubted his care and concern. And that's a doubt that we harbor too, isn't it, from time to time? Right, Jesus doesn't notice what I'm going through. He doesn't care about what I'm going through. seems oblivious to what I'm going through. We don't see Jesus acting according to our agenda of what I think should be done. And so we assume he doesn't care. Like the disciples here. The third doubt the disciples have, and the third doubt we also have, is, is in Jesus' mission. They, do, they doubt his identity, they doubt that he cares, and they doubt his, his mission. Right? They, they, they should have known. Jesus is, what, what's he doing? He's proclaiming the kingdom. He's announcing the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I've come to bring the kingdom of God. This is something that God has been preparing for and, 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 and orchestrating since Genesis 3.15 all the way through Israel's long history, thousands of years, all the way up to Jesus Christ. God has been, has been orchestrating the coming of the King of the Kingdom and the bringing of the Kingdom of Heaven. And now the disciples are worried that a little storm in the Sea of Galilee is going to ruin the whole plan? Do you see? 
They think that, 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 that uh, they, they've forgotten what he's come to do. They're thinking in earthly terms, right? They're looking with the eyes of the flesh. Big storm. Weak Jesus. The kingdom of heaven's over. Instead of the eyes of faith. Of course, God's going to oversee all things to establish his kingdom according to his plan. It's easy for us to criticize the disciples. I know we're not in the boat soaking wet and fighting for our lives as they, as they were. Uh, we're at a safe distance here. We know how the story ends. We should uh, they, sh- they should have realized the kingdom of heaven must succeed, that his mission, Christ's mission must succeed. But we, we doubt this as well, don't we? We see circumstances in our lives or circumstances in our world, and we say, uh-oh, right? Is the church going to make it? Is God's purpose going to really succeed? Or, or, or are the gates of hell going to prevail against the church? We see a trial come or a storm of some kind come, and we fear that we ourselves or our family or our children or the church, or it's going to capsize. It's in his hands. The kingdom is in his hands. He's bringing it. No storm will overwhelm it. So, brothers and sisters, we've diagnosed, we've, we've, we've kind of pulled apart and, and, and inspected the disciples' doubt here. We've, we've looked at our doubt as well in light of this. That the heart of our doubt is seeing this, that the storm is big and, and that Christ looks small. That we doubt who he says he is, we doubt that he cares, and we doubt that his mission really will succeed. And that's the position the disciples are in when they go wake up Jesus. So let's look now as they, they come to wake up, wake up Jesus. They say to him, Lord, save. We perish. Now it's interesting here. We've said they're full of doubt, but there's a glimmer of faith, isn't there? Right? They're still waking him up. They, they, they seem to think he might be able to do something. They're desperate. It's a small, weak faith, but I think there's still faith. They're terrified. They wake up Jesus. He takes in the whole scene. He sees the storm raging, waves crashing over the boat, a boat's about to go down. He sees the disciples. He sees the disciples, how fearful they are, how scared they are. What does he do first? The disciples. Before he calms the storm, he addresses the disciples. Notice his priority. He rebukes the disciples first. He says, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Do you see, loved ones, the striking difference between the way the eyes of the flesh look at a situation and the eyes of faith look at a situation? We look at this situation and say, of course they're afraid. They're about to die. They have every reason to be afraid. Jesus looks at the situation and says, of course you have no reason to be afraid. How could you be afraid? You have every reason not to fear. Don't you know who's in the boat with you? So Jesus rebukes them for their, for their doubt and their fear. And then graciously, he does save. He turns and he rebukes the winds and the waves. It's wonderful. He doesn't wait for their faith to get stronger. He doesn't say, well, give it an hour. And if you cannot be afraid, you know, for the next hour, then I'll save you from the storm. He rebukes them. He rebukes their, 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 their doubt. He says, he calls them little faiths. But then immediately, he rebukes the storm and calms the storm and saves them. 
It's wonderful. It's, it's, it's astounding. But he turns to the lake and he rebukes it. And immediately, everything is still. Right? It's not just that the winds die down gradually or the waves slowly you know, calm down after a few hours. Instantly, it's all still. Dead calm. As soon as he says it. Verse 24 told us it was a great storm. Verse 26 says, now it's a great calm. And the disciples are in awe. It's interesting here, Matthew doesn't call them disciples in verse 27. He calls them the men. Usually he refers to the disciples as the disciples, but here he, he particularly says that they are men, right? creatures, in awe of their Creator in the boat with them. It's highlighting this distinction between them and, and, and the Creator, our Lord Jesus, in the boat with them. Jesus is saying this to His disciples, look at who I am. Look at my identity and my authority and my care for you and, and, my, and my mission. Look, look, look at my identity especially. He, he's not just showing this raw display of power here. He's showing them that He is God with us, fulfilling all these expectations that the Old Testament is full of. Over and over in the Old Testament, God stills the storm. We see it, we see it especially in the Psalms. There are many that speak of this. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me pull out a few for us to see here. Psalm 104, verses 5 to 7. It talks about God stilling the storm. And it talks in particular about, uh, about God uh, in the work of creation having power over the waters and the waves. Listen, listen to Psalm 104, verses 5-7. through 7. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. So Jesus is taking... Right, he, he's God. The God of create, creative power. Stilling the waves. Stilling the storm. Another psalm, Psalm 65, 7, speaks of God's power over nature and the nations using this imagery of God calming the storm. We used this in our call to worship earlier this morning. The Lord stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. What's that about? God is the king. Jesus is saying, I'm the king with all power. Psalm 106, verse 9, another one, speaks about how God rebukes the Red Sea as He redeems Israel from Egypt. Psalm 106, verse 9, He rebuked the Red Sea and it became dry, and He led them through the deep as through a desert. God rebukes the waters to redeem His people. Jesus is saying, I'm the one who's come to lead you in the new exodus. I'm the redeemer of, the, of you, Israel, and I'm rebuking the sea. Same kind of power, same kind of authority. There's another one, Psalm 107, verses 25 to 30. This is about God. Uh, it uses the imagery of men on ships in the sea, and a big storm comes, and God makes the storm be still. And it's speaking about God's rescuing His people from exile in particular, and using this as an image of God's rescue of His people from the exile. This is Psalm 107. 25 to 30. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. 
They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. And they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. What a picture! Psalm 107, way back before Jesus did any of this. Men in a boat, big storm that God caused and then God stilled. Picture of the exile. God causes the storm, sends his people into this distress to teach them to trust him. And he brings them out of it. Jesus is saying, I'm I'm God who does that same thing. And then one, one more, Psalm 89. This is our Old Testament reading that went along with the, the New Testament text for the sermon. And Psalm 89 um, is, is about the Messiah. It's about the Lord's anointed. It's about David and the greater David who's going to come, who's going to have an eternal kingdom. And what, what's one of the things that's going to mark this king and his kingdom? Right, what, what, what do we read here in Psalm 89? O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea when its waves rise, you still them. And then the psalm goes on later. It says, um, I've exalted one chosen from the people. I found David, my servant, with my holy oil. I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. Promising. The greater David is going to have power over the sea, power over the storm. So, the question, right, the disciples ask. They see this glorious miracle that Christ does. Who is this? Who is it? It's God with us. It's Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the greater David, come to establish the kingdom of heaven according to his awesome power and authority. This is the God who calls you. This is the Lord who calls you to follow him, who calls you not to be afraid, but to trust him, to have faith, to have faith in him. Brothers and sisters, right, it's, it's going to be one or the other. Jesus says to his disciples, right, don't fear, trust me. It's going to be fear or faith, one or the other. One will drive out the other, right? Faith will drive out fear or fear will drive out faith as you, as you face the storms of life. The Lord does not want you to be fearful. He wants you to be full of faith and trust and know, know who he is. Matthew Henry has a wonderful comment on this. He, he points out that Jesus does not rebuke the disciples for disturbing him with their prayers, but for disturbing themselves with their fears. They've disturbed themselves with their fears. They've worked themselves up into an anxious state by their fears. And that's what the Lord's rebuking them for, for failing to see who he is and, and, and being full of, full of fear. Matthew calls us in the gospel here to, to uh, drive out fear with faith, to trust Jesus Christ, right? to, to look at Jesus and to see who he is, to see his authority and his power, and to trust him. Maybe you would say to Matthew, right? he says, don't be afraid. Right? Jesus says, don't be afraid, trust me. Maybe you would say, well, that's, that's fine for you to say, right? Imagine Matthew saying this to you, right? He, you say to Matthew, you, Matthew, you were in the boat. 
You can say that. It's easy for you to tell me not to be afraid. Jesus was in the boat with you, literally there, and he calmed the storm. But what I'm going through right now, I don't see him. The storm's still going. I've asked him, where is he? You wouldn't be the first to feel that way. Many Christians throughout the centuries have. One in particular, William Cooper, as a, a hymn writer from the 18th century, he wrote a couple of hymns that we, we know and love. There's a fountain filled with blood. Um, God moves in a mysterious way. Those were two of his. He struggled throughout his life with severe depression and, uh, uh, and attempted suicide several times as well. At one particularly dark, dark point in his life, he wrote a poem based on a news story he had heard about a ship that went down. There was a ship at sea, big storm, uh, um, and there's a castaway, and there's someone who drowned. And Cooper latched onto that image to describe his own experience of, of, of darkness in the midst of his storms. And he writes in the final stanza of this poem, No voice divine the storm allayed. No light propitious shone. No voice divine the storm allayed. Cooper's saying, Jesus didn't calm the storm for me. He hasn't calmed the storm for me. Or so he thought. He seemed, it seemed to him, Jesus isn't here. Jesus isn't calming the storm. But right, what's he doing? He's looking with the eyes of the flesh. Not the eyes of faith. What do we see with the eyes of faith? We see Jesus' promise at the end of Matthew's Gospel. What does he say at the end of the Gospel? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. His authority is no less now than it was when he calmed the storm. In fact, he's been exalted at the right hand of God reigning as the Messiah. His authority is no less now, brothers and sisters, and also His presence is no less with us now. What does He say? I will be with you always. By My Spirit, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. It's a promise. So, brothers and sisters... He leads you into the storm. He's in control of it the whole time. And He's with you in it. And He will, at some point, according to His purpose, lead you out of it. The line from the hymn, Be Still My Soul, puts it so well. The waves and winds still know His voice who ruled them while He dwelt below. So don't fear. Keep your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is with you. Trust Him. Let's pray. Gracious Lord God, thank You for our glorious Savior. Thank You for His great authority and His great power and His great willingness to save and His grace towards doubting sinners. We pray that we would trust Him, that we would keep our eyes on Him, that we would look not with the eyes of flesh, but with the eyes of faith, that see Him for who He is. We pray that you do this for us, for the glory of your name. Amen.